Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering four conversations from episode 59, our review of the recent Nature Review's gastroenterology and hepatology paper titled Advancing the Global Public Health Agenda for NAFLD. Stephen Harrison starts this conversation by stating his wish for more accurate global prevalence data as a way to drive changes in behavior. After Jorn Schottenberg concurs, Jeffrey Lazarus cautions that it will be years before we have this data based on historical patterns with hep C and HIV. From there, the conversation veers into several directions. Discussions of the extensive global cost of fatty liver diseases on the world economy, the perspective value of targeting a specific high-risk demographic group, and the challenges based on fatty liver presenting as two different kinds of health risks at different points of the disease. Finally, for this conversation, Jeff Lazarus tells the remarkable story of how different types of stakeholders from other diseases coalesced at the last minute to support this agenda enthusiastically. The agenda itself has been endorsed by medical, governmental, and patient advocate stakeholders around the world. Its results and insights have the potential to shape the global dialogue about NAFLD from here forward. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Stephen Harrison. When I read through the consensus statement that I wish we had more data on so that we could be a little bit more insightful to providers was what is the true prevalence of NASH and what is the true prevalence of NASH with fibrosis that we call the at-risk NASH patient? Because we, we talk a lot about the overall global prevalence of fatty liver, 20, 25%, depending on what continent you're on, it could be as high as 33% or as low as 15 and all that's variable depending on what you use to screen them with. Was it ALT? Was it ultrasound? Was it whatever? We all realize that the majority of these patients aren't going to progress to a liver-related outcome. They're certainly at risk for lots of things, diabetes, heart disease, whatever. But from a liver perspective, if that's what we're focused on as hepatologists, at least in my lane, what is that true number that I need to be out there communicating to primary care? What is that number? number. That's still up in the air a bit. And if we had more knowledge around that, it would allow us to be more laser focused in our message that we want to deliver to primary care and our referring providers and our patients. Jörn Schattenberg. Even summarized this very nicely. If we get an agreement on a public health agenda and we have implemented models of care, we would get patients referred that we need to see that, do need expert care with the tests potentially in place for us to see them in 10 minutes and decide this is advanced fibrosis. I do get an additional test X and then I prescribe the medicine. So I think these type of models looking from the scientific aspect are really the basis for us to move forward. Now, how to implement that in at your local care setting, I think this is another story that requires more thinking. You know, laying out the path, this is a very crucial document. Jeffrey Lazarus. Thanks, Jaron, and thanks, Stephen. So Stephen, so I appreciate that. And I think it's going to be quite some time before we have strong data at, at the global level. I even remember in HIV and AIDS as a student when we were quite far along with UNH estimates, suddenly they were reduced by 6 million due to methodological issues, primarily in India. And then again with hepatitis C, you know, much of that reduction from 2016 to 2019 is related to stronger methodologies. It's going to be a while before we really know the numbers. But what I'm hearing is, is we need to get better at risk stratification. Even if we don't know those with NASH or those with advanced fibrosis, we do know that there's a lot of people who have 
fatty liver disease. And there's a lot of good reasons to address that, including all of the metabolic comorbidities. And urine, uh, you know, led an important study with the costing. One of the main reasons I want to know how many people are out there is because I want to look at what the cost of inaction is to get policymakers to move on it. The real numbers, I think we're going to be surprised. I think they're going to be very different than what we've been estimating, but it's really anybody's guess. And like you said, I mean, the difference between, is it 20% of the adult population and 25% is gigantic. And yet those are the numbers we throw around. But I always tell people if it was five or 10% of the adult population, that would just still be extraordinary. And it means there's so much we need to do to address fatty liver disease, even if we don't even know how many of them are going to have advanced fibrosis. Just to follow up on that, we were reviewing data today from a very important study being conducted predominantly in the U.S. in a phase 2B setting with the therapy for NASH. And as we all know, the screen fail rates for these studies are inextricably high on the order of 70, 80, 85 percent. And so we all struggle with how do we identify the right patient to put into screening. And so we were mining the screen fail data. And this is something that is near and dear to Yorn's heart as well. And one of the things that comes up over and over and over again when we mine the data is older postmenopausal females with diabetes that isn't well controlled, not out of control diabetes, but not HbA1c's below six either. So we're talking about diabetes with fasting plasma glucose is above 125-ish range in an older population of typically postmenopausal females. I mean, if you look at who gets bad NASH, if you enroll trials with F3 and F4 disease, it's overwhelmingly female. So if we were to target that low-hanging fruit, that we all talk about, that's a message that could be delivered today. It's been shown in multiple different data sets that that population of patients over and over again is at significantly increased risk. So even if we don't have full data on a population level, we do have enough data, I think, to where we can begin to send a message of, look, we may not know all the answers, but we know some of the answers and let's at least get that out there. Louise, go ahead. Louise Campbell. I read the consensus statement with interest because there are lots of strengths around the world in various healthcare areas. And it's for me, it's about looking to take the strengths from one area and combine it with the strengths of the other. We have lots of weaknesses as well. We have a lot of siloed health system, which is a considerable weakness and obstruction to the care of the individual. But it means we, throughout those areas where that is the predominant use, we don't utilise dietary resources. We don't utilise and share the resources that we could be doing. One of the best sets that I've seen, and I'm not familiar with the way it's configured in the States, but when I go to Perth on the block, every healthcare provider will be in one block. So you'll have your radiology next, your pharmacy next to somewhere else next to your podiatrist next to. So what they do is try and fix them into one small area. So if you're going to travel for healthcare or wellness, you travel to one little area and get it all done at that time. We're looking at a similar model here in the UK for diagnostic hubs so that people go to a central area rather than just split throughout the healthcare systems. But there's lots of strengths throughout. And I thought the consensus piece was really good at looking at some of the weaknesses, but also identifying where there were some strengths in education, looking at patient involvement, which is becoming more stronger and stronger throughout the field. It was great to see so many countries involved, and it would be great 
to sort of break the glass ceiling, to have it acknowledged as an NCD. So I was greatly encouraged by what was said throughout. And I bang on, education, education, education. But just picking up on Jeff's comment about cost, for every person that we take off the pathway with early notification of liver fat, that's potentially a diabetes case avoided. The cost saving potentially of this sort of consensus and implementation throughout the world, particularly in low and socioeconomic countries, I just can't fathom those numbers, let alone promoting wellness. Jeff, you you want to comment on that? Thank you very much. It's funny to hear we want this non-communicable disease to be recognized as a non-communicable disease because it's a non-communicable disease. But um, I mean, I also worked for 11 years at WHO and a lot of that time on hepatitis C and I was alone. We didn't have any department back then that dealt with biohepatitis. Hepatitis B was under vaccine preventable infections and we had no strategy. This is how we start. I mean, we're friends with WHO. WHO director was at our Wilton Park meeting and engaged in the discussions, but there were a lot of advocacy among our own health experts actually to get this recognized and the seriousness of this recognized. And I'm sure Stephen, Yearn, Louise, you could comment even on your own colleagues in the clinical settings. You know, people don't take fatty liver disease always so seriously when most people who die of NASH will die of cardiovascular disease. There's so many comorbidities. There's there's no drugs for it. So it's kind of like, why are you bothering us? So Jeff, before we go back to these folks, you touched on in one statement, what I thought were two of the really interesting things in this document. First of all, the difference between, I think, this non-communicable diseases is that people don't recognize that this is a disease. You never get to the non-communicable part because doctors say to patients all the time, you have fatty liver, but don't worry about it. Lots of people have it. Nothing you can do about it. It's not a big problem. So they treat it as not a disease. And simply elevating the salience of the disease will help tremendously. And then the second thing goes back to your comment, and also something Stephen said earlier, and the, I think, inherent tension between them, which is that Nash progresses to cirrhosis is a liver disease with a relatively short-term serious consequence. NASH back at F2 is a part of a metabolic syndrome where, as Louise points out, you affect diabetes. As you point out, you affect cardiovascular death. It really morphs from one set of problems into another. I would think that one of the opportunities is for people to recognize what a unique problem that causes, but also how it can hit two pins with one ball. I always look at it as if, if you're going to build a new house, you need to look at the foundations If when you bring it down. When I look at fatty liver disease, it's within the foundations of all of the other diseases. There's a concern that we're plateauing. We're treating cardiovascular disease better, so we're saving more lives, but we're plateaued. And the incidences around the world are increasing, the same with type 2 diabetes. But if you don't look at the foundation or the elephant in the room or whatever you want to call it and address one of the fundamental areas by ignoring it, you're never going to get it to where it should be in these disease areas. So maybe it's just me. If you just ignore one third of your causality because it's stigmatized so much, People just don't see it, as we've said. Primary care don't see it as a cause or a a concern. We're driving it, even though we're interested in the F3, F4 level. Somebody's got to drive it, and I can't think of anybody better than Jeff and Donna and everybody else. Well... It takes a village and having so many co-authors and having so many hepatologists and respected leaders in the field buy into this. I didn't know how people would react to a public health approach and, and even how the journals would react. This was the first time Nature Reviews GastroHep ever did a, a Delphi study and they were very excited and very engaged. It was so interesting that at the end, Chief Editor Katrina Ray asked, you know, because one thing was 218 co-authors, another was more than 100 organizations within two weeks and just before publication 
president were shown the, the, the document and agreed to endorse it, the chief editor of Nature Reviews, Gaster Hepp, said, could other nature journals endorse this? And suddenly the other nature journals dealing with our comorbidities said, hey, fatty liver disease is important to us. We're going to endorse this statement. And nature itself came and endorsed. It became like just sort of this family came together. And, and even within journals that are often working in a very parallel manner, they came around this article. And it was really a, a neat process. I mean, obviously, I've never experienced that in one of my articles before where you send it off, you get the reviews, you get the proofs, you have 48 hours and off it goes. It became really a, kind of an, an event. And in that sense, it was very exciting. Great. And you know, the other aspect I think is very important. We need awareness in terms of those journals and the scientific community, because in the end, you also need independent funding. So you need funders to give money to researchers and that money should not necessarily always come from pharma companies, but you need an independent research platform here to really engage academia in develop pharma independent aspects. So I think at multiple levels, this is so useful for the field. Endorsement by these major scientific journals will really support this. And now back to Roger. We hope you have enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, December 15th, with our next episode in which we review the Splendor study on bariatric surgery and the impact of related weight loss on the liver. If you want to join the live audience Monday, December 13th at 3.15 p.m. Eastern Time, email surflive at surfingnash.com. That's S-U-R-F-L-I-V-E with the request that we will send back a link to serve as your ticket or simply look for our invitation post this coming Friday. I hope you join us then either live or on the podcast. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.